This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Together in the Word of God uh, to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48 is where we need to be today. So I'll just give you a few moments to locate that. Genesis 48. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed your father is sick, and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel, of course that's Jacob, isn't it? Israel. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan beside me and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Cana on the way. And there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the, uh, on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought, near, brought, him, brought them near him and kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim and his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And let my name be named upon them, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now then Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a, become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, 
by you Israel will bless, saying, my, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Jacob is 147 years old. He knows that his journey on earth is coming to a close. And so he gathers his sons together to give them what was commonly called the patriarchal blessing. And that would be a mixture of compliments and comments and commendations and complaints and, of course, uh, prophecy. And so Joseph then brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, to have his old father uh, bless them. And he saw there how that when they came, he seemed to be unaware who they were, simply because his eyes were dim with age. But of course, once Joseph told them who exactly they were, then he immediately desired to lay his hands on them and bless them. And Joseph quite naturally, strategically placed his two sons in front of his father uh, with Manasseh opposite uh, Jacob's right hand and Ephraim opposite Jacob's left hand so that the eldest, the firstborn Manasseh would get the greater blessing and that Ephraim, the youngest, would get the lesser blessing. That was according to custom. That was the way things were done. That would be fully expected of him to do that. However, uh, we see here that whenever it came to the blessing that Jacob immediately crossed his hands and placed his right hand on the younger, which was Ephraim, and his left hand on the elder, which was Manasseh. And, of course, then Joseph, saying that, protested. Uh, he thought, this is a big mistake Dad is making. I must tell him. I know he's blind, but he's not saying too well. So he told him, and Jacob says, no, I know. I know exactly what I'm doing. I deliberately did that because, in fact, the younger one is the one that's going to get the blessing. And, of course, uh, the, the blessing that would normally go to the eldest would be the double blessing. And uh, now that is going uh, to uh, Ephraim. And uh, he guided his hands knowingly. And so the younger was preferred above the elder. This was not... Uh, new, of course, it happened a number of times in Scripture. You remember Abel was preferred above Cain, and that Isaac was preferred above Israel, and that Jacob himself was preferred above Esau, and of course Joseph was preferred above Reuben, and now Ephraim is preferred above uh, Manasseh. 2,000 years ago, God, in a sense, knowingly, deliberately, consciously, intentionally made a cross. And we received a tremendous blessing that was not due to us. And it's a beautiful little picture of what God did for us through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. A great exchange, a tremendous switchover so that you and I would get a tremendous blessing. God's hand of judgment came upon Christ, but his hand of mercy came upon us. God's hand of punishment for our sins came upon Christ, but God's hand of pardon came upon us. 
Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so this morning, for a few moments, we want to look at this great exchange, the day that God crossed his hands, as it were, and we became the recipients of all the blessings that God could bestow upon us. Amen. What did he get? What did we get when God crossed his hands? We get life instead of death. Death is the great enemy of mankind, is it not? Down through the years, man has sought for ways to deal with death. The Egyptians with their embalming, of course. And we know that the Hindus, they have their funeral pyres. And we know that the Hindu also has this reincarnation. And the atheist has extinction. extinction. Uh, in other words, we, we go to dust and that's the end of it. And so man has always tried to find a way to cope with death and to get some kind of an answer. But thank God we have got the resurrection. God gave us the resurrection. One of the great hopes of the church. Paul wrote a whole chapter about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He has much to say about it. And we wouldn't read all of that chapter, of course. Uh, But he says... In verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some say among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he, puts all, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that he will, will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. And when he says all things are put under him, it is evident he has put all things under him uh, is accepted. And now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so we have the great, wonderful uh, hope of the resurrection unto life eternal. And that settles the issue for the believer. We're not concerned. We're not worried about our future in that respect. We know that God has already got it planned. 
And if our life should end even this day, it's absent from the body and it is present with the Lord immediately. And so we have got a home in heaven for all eternity. What a joy that will be to look forward to. What a delight that will be whenever we get into the presence of the Lord himself. What a tremendous thrill it will be to see heaven, to see the very architecture of heaven to see the very angels of heaven, to meet loved ones who have died in Christ who have gone on before, to see the saints, to see the patriarchs, and above all, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. What a thrill. He's given us life instead of death. Somebody says, he that is born twice will die but once, but he that is born once will die twice. Revelation 20 talks about the second death. Thank God that's to not in our future. <laughs> Thank God that has been taken care of for us. But not only that, this gives us victory instead of defeat. Another great enemy of mankind, of course, is the devil and the kingdom of darkness. And the wonderful thing is that the only class of people that can overcome the devil and the kingdom of darkness are the believers. Hallelujah. What a privilege. What an honor we have on this earth. In spite of all of the power of the evil one, in spite of all of the power of the kingdom of darkness that's raging across planet earth, we are the only ones that can overcome that through Christ. Isn't that great? In Luke chapter 10... Verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Christ let us know that that is a fact, that we do have the authority and the power over the kingdom of darkness. But he, in fact, he says, but don't get your eyes fixated on that. Rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life in heaven. In 1 John chapter 4, that little epistle... First John chapter 4, verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Isn't that wonderful? Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world. The world hears them, but we are of God. And he who knows God hears us. Who is not of God does not hear us, and this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's you and that's me. So we need not concern ourselves about being overcome by the world because we have in Christ overcome the world. We are the overcomers. We are, as the Bible says, more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. So what a tremendous position that we hold in Christ today. He's given us this to our favor. Apostle Paul writes, in Ephesians 6 and 10, you know it well. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. <coughs> Excuse me. There is the hierarchy of the kingdom of darkness that wages war <coughs> excuse me, against the believer. But thank God we overcome the world in Christ, but he has given us armor to defend ourselves. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so God has given us a tremendous victory. So we have victory instead of defeat. We have life instead of death. We have grace instead of law. We have faith instead of works. Christianity is the only religion that is based on grace instead of law and on faith instead of works. All other religions are works and law oriented. All of them. All of them has to do something, work some way to grant the favor of God. All of them without exception. They must do something. They must do continually works in order to get God's favor, which is the very opposite of faith and the very opposite of grace. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they must knock doors. They must be culpateurs. They must sell their literature. They have to. It's part of their belief system. They have to do that. They must do that in order to curry favor with God. If we knock doors, if we go out and witness, it's not because we have to to save ourselves, it's because we want to to bless the Lord and to extend God's kingdom. And there's a vast difference between the two. Mormons are exactly the same. All cults have got to do this. But having said that, there are millions of Protestants and Catholics who do exactly the same, who do not understand grace, 
who do not understand faith. They believe that they themselves have to live in such a way and do such works that God will be pleased and God will grant them favor and God will allow them into his heaven because of what they have done. You have met many of them. Some of them are a part of your family. Somebody you live next door to. And when you go to witness to them, they say, I'm all right. I'm okay. Some of them actually believe that all you have to do is believe that God exists. Well, James says that devils also believe that and they tremble at the thought of it. Some believe that all you've got to do is just go to church. Say the Lord's Prayer before you go to bed at night or have communion or have mass. And if you do all of that, God will accept you. But there's no grace in that. There's no faith in that. That's works and it's law. But salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone. And therein lies the big difference. We came believing in his grace and we believed by faith and he saved us and he gave us eternal life. Of course, since that, then we have works of righteousness. Then we do good things, but not for our salvation, not to get us into heaven, but because he saved us and we're pleased and delighted to bless his kingdom and to work for his kingdom. Galatians 2.16, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I've told you a thousand times, I'll tell you one more time. The curse of the law was the fact that we could not keep it. And it condemned us. <laughs> we could not keep it, and it condemned us. It showed us our sin and let us know that we could not keep God's law. It was too perfect, it was too righteous, it was too holy. And we could not keep it. There's only one ever kept it and he fulfilled it. The Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, the Christian way to heaven, is centered on a person, not on a system of belief. When major religious leaders die, their system of belief lives on. Doesn't it? Joseph Smith died, Mormonism lives on. Muhammad died, Islam lives on. Buddha died, Buddhism lives on. Confucius died, Confucianism lives on, even though it was a philosophy around the religion. Even there are religions that had no founder, like Hinduism, it still lives on, and it's all its teachings. But Christianity, without Christ rising from the dead, could not have lived on. 
It would have died in that tomb in Jerusalem. That's where it would have ended if it had not have been for the resurrection of Jesus. His teaching would not have lived on. You say, how so, David? Well, let me cause you to think about this. When Jesus was hanging on that cross on that day, as far as his friends were concerned, as far as his disciples were concerned, that looked like failure. That's what it was to them. He came, as it were, to found a new religion of grace and mercy and compassion and faith. He had a valiant attempt to do so, but look, he's hanging on a cross. How could that be the Messiah? How could that be the deliverer of Israel? How could that be the savior of the world? How could that be the son of God? The religious authorities, it seemed like, were too clever for him. They had too much influence and power over government. The Roman authorities caved in. Pilate wasn't smart enough to outwit those religious leaders. And so here is the one that they believe was the Son of God, was the Messiah, was the Savior of the world, was their deliverer of Israel, and he's hanging on a Roman cross as a common criminal, and he's died. Jesus was a simple carpenter from Galilee. Nazareth of all places, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Galilee was away up to the north. They were the country people. Their accents were thicker and different. Not like the sophisticated, affluent, influential Judeans in Jerusalem. The group he had gathered around him were axe fishermen, <laughs> axe publicans, tax collectors. ex-paramilitaries, zealots. And now he's died. True, he got a decent burial. And that was through the good offices of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. It wasn't through them. They were all hiding. Just a few women came to the tomb to finish off the work of the burial. Where was the man? They were gone. They had fled, frightened. One even had denied him, sold him out, 30 pieces of silver. His top disciple had even denied him that he ever existed. He ever knew him. Didn't belong to him. But they had loved him. They had believed in him. They had trusted him. They had followed him. They had given up everything to be a disciple. But all that was before the cross. All that was before Calvary. Before the shame. Before the humiliation. Before the disillusionment. Before the disappointment. Before all of their hopes were dashed. Now do you suppose for one moment that if Jesus had not arisen from the dead... Do you suppose that those disillusioned, disappointed, disheartened, 
devastated disciples? Do you suppose they would have took his teachings and they would have turned their world upside down with his teachings and turned our world upside down? I don't think so. What teachings would they have believed? That he was the Messiah? Don't think so. He's dying on a Roman cross as a criminal. That he was the Son of God? Don't think so. How could the Son of God die? Huh? That he would rise again from the dead? I don't think so. Not one of them believed that. Not one of them. Hmm? And on and on you could go. The only thing that would change their mind, the only thing that would cause Christianity from that point to become what it is today was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that could change it. And it did change it. And it did happen. And Christ today is very much alive and well. And his church is thriving around the world. In fact, his church is growing. It's the biggest religious movement on the face of the earth today. No matter what they say about Islam and all the rest of it, the church of Jesus Christ is still the biggest. It's still the greatest. It's still the most growing one. Don't look at Western Europe for that. Don't look at North America. Look across the rest of the world. You'll see that Christianity is exploding. After 2,000 years, it's still happening to this very day. Death and hell has been defeated. Satan lost the war, and he is eternally defeated. Christianity will not fail, cannot fail, because its founder is sitting on the throne on high. Glory to God. And so... He gave us success instead of failure. He said, David, but what if I fail? I, I mean, you're talking about the Son of God who could not fail, but what if I fail? Failure need not be final. Ask Peter. Ask King David. Ask some of the failures in Scripture that God picked up again became mighty man of God, mighty woman of God. Failure need not be final. Because of the cross, because God can change us from a failure into a success if we put our lives into his hands. Glory to God. Amen. And so, the day that God, as it were, crossed his hands, and what blessings came upon us because of that. Nobody could see it. When Jesus was on this earth, they didn't get it. But they got it after he rose again from the dead. Please. Suddenly, it all became clear. Those two in the road to a mess. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have been one of those two when Jesus opened up the scriptures? All things concerning himself that the prophets told. <laughs> Suddenly, their eyes were opened and they could see who he was. Ah, oh, what a savior we've got today. What a wonderful, precious Savior we have got. Aren't you glad for him today? Aren't you glad for his life, for his victory, for his grace? Aren't you glad that he has caused us to rise up and to be successful for his kingdom? Because you are. Are you in Christ? You're a success. Do you feel? Of course we do. But we're not a failure because we have risen up again in his grace and we go forward in Christ. Amen? Let's pray.
Bless the Lord. Lord, we thank you today that we are part of that great company of the firstborn. We bless you today that we are the saints of God. We thank you that we are ambassadors for Christ. Lord, you have put us in a privileged position on the face of this earth. Lord, only believers who stand in this position, and we thank you that we're one of them today. So we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for that day and hour when you came into our lives and you changed us forever. We have never been the same. We'll, we'll never be the same. And we bless you for that. We thank you for so great salvation. We thank you for the life of God that's in us today, making us who we are, giving us the power and the ability to live this Christian life for Jesus. Thank you for the witness that we have that we belong to you. Thank you for the words that you give us to speak and to share with others that would encourage and uplift and bless. So we thank you, Lord. We have much to be grateful for today. We thank you for your church, your church that's exploding around the world, your church in China, in Indonesia, in Korea, Lord, in the nations of the world. Lord, your church is planted and it's growing and it's blossoming. We thank you, Lord, for what's happening even in the Middle East, Lord, even in the Muslim countries, Lord, where beneath all of that, Lord, you're in there, you're moving by your spirit. And Lord, there's many, many coming to Christ and they're getting saved and born again by your spirit, Lord. And Lord, even though it may cost cost them their very lives, yet, Lord, they're willing to do that, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you come and even appear to them in dreams and visions, Lord, and you send people across their path, Lord, and you get Bibles to them and the Word of God. So we bless you, Lord, that your church is alive and well on planet Earth, and Lord, it's growing every day, and Lord, we're part of it, Lord, even in this nation, and so we give you thanks, Lord. Bless the churches, Lord, even in this community of ours. Lord, every church that preaches your gospel, Lord, we pray that you'll prosper it, that you'll bless it, that men and women may find Christ in them, Lord. So we give you thanks. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Bless the Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.